Welcome to The Impossible Network, the podcast about everyday people living extraordinary lives. Each week, we explore how their upbringing affected them, how creativity fueled them, and how serendipity guided them. Since the election, we've had more discussions about, I think, immigration issues, about certainly assault issues that are related to Me Too, and also that more men coming forward as well, trying to work through their own histories and trying to figure out and make sense of maybe murky or ambiguous encounters that they've had in their life too. This week's guest is Dr. Courtney Renicky, founder of Renicky Associates, a Manhattan-based psychotherapy practice that provides treatments for children, teens, and adults dealing with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorders, and post-adoption issues. As a Massachusetts-born and Columbia University-trained clinical psychologist, Courtney has a mission to offer her patients personalized, pragmatic, and progressive therapies that help them understand their stories and deal with their darkest moments in order to form stronger connections with themselves and with others. She travels internationally to train and coach mental health professionals, parents and organisations about how attachment-based principles can improve the quality of their lives and the culture of their groups. In this episode, we discuss how Courtney's early upbringing influenced her decision to follow a path in psychotherapy. We discuss our first-hand experience of the psychological effects of the current political and social climate, what we can learn from other countries' more balanced representation of race and gender, the neurological impact of neglect or abuse, and the necessity for human connection, and there's a lot more. I hope you enjoy this thought-provoking discussion with Dr. Courtney Renicky. Welcome, Courtney. I'm really glad to be here. So I'd like to begin with your childhood and growing up. Dangerous question to be asking a psychologist, Mark. (laughs) It's an an important and obvious question to be asking a psychologist, I think. I'd like to begin with your childhood and growing up then. How did your family's social environment set you on your path to being a psychotherapist and an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, on the psychotherapy end, I really credit that to my mom. Um, And my dad, too, maybe in a different way. But I think my mom in that... Um, when we were growing up, she had trained initially as a nurse, then as a Montessori school teacher, I think was a real seeker of um, kind of understanding other people in her own way and in her own journey. She then like kind of throughout the course of my lifetime really set herself upon, you know, a lot of different kind of spiritual kind of journeys and pathways, but she was always kind of seeking, was always kind of curious to understand. And I think because she was coming from a very strict Irish Catholic upbringing, um, you know, I think that by default, she was kind of always trying to understand things in a different ways. So that was always, whether it was, it was never labeled psychotherapy, we were, the word psychology I'd never heard of before, really. Um, bef- even before I got to college, really, I knew it was a course in college, but I, it wasn't really anything that was in the house. But I think there was a sensitivity because of my mother's kind of nursing early childhood kind of spiritual journey that was just um, a part of kind of a drumbeat that was in the house, this kind of curiosity um, about things. So I think that's kind of this, that's the psychotherapy part. Was there anything, was there anything specifically about um, what she did that led you to become interested in it? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people have parents that lead a career and go off in a completely different direction. Yeah. There must have been something. I think it was honestly more, you know, um, my mom and my brother and I were all kind of night owls and we used to have these chats at the top of the stairs, um, you know, late at night. And I think those chats always centered around kind of talking about our day and talking about the people in our family, but kind of from an emotionally intelligent kind of perspective on things. And so I think my mom I could always tell really enjoyed those conversations. I think that my brother probably remembers them fondly too. He's now going into the field in a different way. He's, he just got his master's in social work. So there's something I think about those top of the stair conversations late at night in the Renneke your household. Your certainly had an impact. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I and think You mentioned so. your father. In what, in yeah. what different way did he have an impact? I think, um, you know, my dad grew up in a family where his father... Uh, was an alcoholic and my grandmother was you know, suffered from very severe anxiety was an agoraphobic and I think just his kind of candor and honesty and reflecting on his family because we would go down you know his his parents were the closest family that 
lived to us. We didn't live near any of my mom or dad's family. So we used to see them more often than my mom's family. They were a big deal to us as kids. But I think as we got older, um, my grandfather, when I met him, was sober, but was in AA. So we would go over their house and there'd be like these AA meetings breaking up and there'd be these strange um, adults giving me the, you know, the the AA cards that, you you're know, one so, You're being socialized. I was age. doing totally socialized. <laughs> so I think, you know, my grandmother in that sense that she was somebody that, um, you know, she later got very involved with Al-Anon and ended up doing substance abuse counseling at a steel mill in, in Connecticut. So I think that that, that was around, but uh, I think that it was really my dad's just kind of candor and kind of understanding his life and his childhood. And those discussions, I think, also used to kind of sparked my interest about putting pieces together of people's lives about what's seen and not seen. Being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. As well, because yeah. you have your own business. Yeah. I think you believe you have a 12-person practice yes. in, in Lower Manhattan, in yes, Tribeca. Yes, What is it that instilled that um, desire, that ambition, and also probably the work ethic that's <laughs> yeah. required yeah. to take on such a big challenge? Yeah. I would say, you know, I, I think if it goes to work ethic, uh, it goes very directly to my dad. Um, you know, he growing up, you know, there's like these kind of mythical stories about him building these rock walls in our house in New England out in the sweltering, you know, 90 degree heat and humidity in the middle of August, like when no one would even dare go outside. You know, he just um, growing up was really dogged and was... Is he Irish as well? He's He he does have some Irish in him, yeah, but he's he is German and Russian... Um, uh, has a Russian Jewish background as well as kind of an Ir- a German Irish Catholic and a Russian uh, Jewish background. So he's, that's where he's coming from. And I think also coming from, as I was mentioning, his upbringing, things were pretty chaotic. And so I think he got the idea that he could work himself out of the chaos and did and did and has done and continues to do because he's still working full time um, incredibly well for himself. So I think that I, I think I, I kind of walk humbly behind in his work ethic shoes um, if, as it comes to, to work ethic part of things. Having that element of self-belief to yeah. set up your business, to take yeah. a leap from just going into a normal practice. Yeah. Who's been the greatest influence on that sense yeah. of self-belief? I don't know that there's one person, but I think that it is, um, I think it, it really duly, an enormous debt of gratitude goes to my parents for being, I think, equally and kind of incredibly just had a lot of faith in me. And I think throughout my life, not just as a an adult and as a professional, I think trusted me. Uh, you know, to do the to do the right thing and to kind of be able to pull things off even when you know when I look back on it now I really feel like you know even when I was in high school my mom trusted myself and a couple girlfriends to take the family car down to South Carolina for spring break once I mean I don't know how she possibly could have um put so much faith in us but I think that there's just this sense that they had I think for me and for my brother that we would kind of were capable people and I think let us take risks that might make big mistakes, but just had this you kind of... You think that was conscious on their part? I think that it really was. I know from my... I know it's something that was discussed. And I think I think particularly for my mom, it was a little bit of a reaction of kind of having maybe a bit of overprotective parents or parents who, you know, loved her very much, but I think didn't necessarily send her the direct message of like, you can go out in the world and do anything. So I think that... Um, you know, I think part of it really was kind of a conscious correction to that kind of an upbringing. And I think for my dad, it was more, he was just kind of used to him being a capable operator in the world. And I think didn't really like the idea of kind of being overprotective of us. I think he wanted us to know we could go out and make it and, you know, get through hard times and figure ourselves out in the world. It's a, it's a good combination. Yeah. In terms of genes. To have. It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky. I'd mentioned that you've built your own 12-person psychotherapy practice mm-hmm. um, in Tribeca. Yeah. Well, I think it was Soho and you just recently moved. Uh, you also travel the world training and coaching. Yeah. I'd like to understand if there was any serendipitous experience or encounter or person mm-hmm. that impacted or affected the direction of your journey. Yeah. And what you've achieved to date. Yeah, sure. Um, there's probably a number of people. 
um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, because there's, there's the training and then there's the content of the training. And so I think that, you know, how I got, I, I train in a model with a horribly jargony entitled name, which is dyadic developmental psychotherapy. And essentially that is an attachment focused family therapy that was originally developed by a man named Dan Hughes, who worked with a lot of kids in foster care and adoptees uh, in Maine originally. And so how I got to that was completely serendipitous in terms of that the first psychotherapy case I ever had as a trainee now over like 18 years ago was a little girl who was adopted and she really stayed with me because I felt like at the time even though I had really bright smart supervisors where I went to school at Columbia um, I never felt they that we were able to really kind of really help her and her mom evolve in having the kind of relationship that they both wanted and address some of the issues now that I understand to be more around attachment issues um, directly through the kind of play therapy that we were doing. So I think that she was really integral to kind of start me down this intellectual, but what has become a very emotional kind of, you know, existential kind of journey of working with um, adopted families and working with um, foster care agencies and people working in foster care. So this first case, this yeah. little girl, yeah. you weren't using, uh, you call it di- dyadic di- developmental psych- development psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dyadic developmental psychology. Yeah, DDP. Yeah, so you weren't using DDP fast. at that point in time? No, I what, wasn't. What therapy were you using? So I was well, trained at Columbia and, and initially I was working in a more psychodynamic um, kind of play therapy model, which would be, um, you know, was was more non-directive where you let the child kind of choose different materials and play uh, things in the, in the room, toys and other things. Sometimes it's done with sand trays and figures, but essentially to kind of they create and play out internal dramas is essentially kind of the thinking behind it. Um, so I wasn't using that at the time. It was really child led and certainly, you know, explored a lot of the things that she appeared to, to be thinking about that, you know, she would replicate over and over again. She came from an orphanage, so she would pack a, doll, a dollhouse room full of babies. Um, There's other elements of her internal life that I think got expressed, but her mom was still stressed out and felt like she couldn't figure out this mix of this, her daughter's kind of over with her and then rejection of her. Um, and I think the little girl had no understanding of what the early impact of being separated from her biological family and this adoption, which was also a transracial adoption. Um, and there was certainly not any discussion directly for the mom and the kid about understanding the differences in their race and their background. So they're just, I felt like there just wasn't, um, there wasn't enough that I did to help this, the, this, this little girl and her so family. So what was the leap to DDP from there? So the leap was kind of a long and winding road through different um, training and, and, and experiences. Um, and it was actually, you know, my, uh, my mentor uh, and at university was, um, you know, probably also very crucial in my kind of development as a psychotherapist. She was the first psychologist I'd ever met, and I think was really instrumental in helping me feel like I think if my parents gave me some foundation of self confidence, I think she really gave me the idea that I could really do this psychotherapy bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had introduced me to this book and um, by Dan Hughes and had encouraged me to go to one of his trainings, which I did kind of while I was finishing up my training as a postdoc was the first first year that I'd encountered him and this idea about kind of attachment focused family therapy work. And that set you on the direct path. And that path set me towards. on this path. And I think, you know, I'd like to think I also have maybe some, you know, internal valence and kind of traction for it because I think that really walking that walk is about being transparent, being open, trying to be vulnerable um, and clear with your clients, for me, with my staff, with my supervisees, um, really being focused on creating a real relationship with people in the context of psychotherapy. So she set me on the path and I'd like to think I had a little traction inside for it. What I'm trying to understand is you went down that 
that journey, but other psychotherapy practices yeah. don't embrace it? Yes. Or they do embrace it? Or is it... I think it's just not well known. I think that, you know, my hope is that maybe now, because there's so much more going on with um, affective neuroscience, it's this kind of incredible field of us being better able to understand the brain. And as we're understanding the brain and how it develops, I think we're getting more and more models are getting closer to kind of how uh, DDP... Um, operates. But I think that I think that psychotherapy, because we started out with this idea of Freud and psychoanalysis, and I think the big backlash against that was that there's no evidence, there's no randomized controlled trials from a medical model perspective. There just wasn't enough research and data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, DDP is a newer model. We're still in the process of gathering um, evidence and research about our model. Um, although we would say that there's a robust amount of, uh, data from attached from, you know, over 50 years of attachment theory. Um, but I think that that's why most programs are either psychodynamic in some way and mm-hmm. kind of have an older tradition or are primarily evidence-based and really are not open to, um, tend not to be open to to newer models of psychotherapy. You mentioned neuroscience yeah. and technology and how yeah. it's advancing dramatically. Do you see foresee a time in the next maybe 10 years where there'll be a strong integration between sort of neuroscience and technology applied to mm-hmm. allow you to deliver a better uh, measurement and metrics in terms of the impact of mm-hmm. your therapies? I think, I mean, if I'm just being frank, in some ways... I really, I should be like a lot more interested in impact. And I guess I am on a one-to-one basis. I think where I, my interest in neuroscience is much more around um, better understanding how do we help people soothe themselves? How do we help people regulate? How does that happen? And I think that there's potentially um, in some of these kind of what I would call kind of adjunctive therapies, things like brain spotting or neurofeedback, some of which are kind of older technologies, but there's some thinking about how do we directly influence the brain to heal itself before we're even getting to psychotherapy. That for a lot of the kids that I see, and also really for a lot of the adults that I work with, we're so reliant on words to heal things that there there might be a more direct impact and way to kind of create different feedback loops with technology in the future. Mm -hmm. That to me is really, really exciting. The idea even, you know, that there is a um, researcher, his name is Stephen Porges, who has a theory called the polyvagal (laughs) theory, (laughs) just full of fun, fun, fun terms for you today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) sounds great. But he has kind of a mechanism called safe and sound that he's been working on for a very long time that essentially just through audio tone, kind of communicates to the brain to get into a state of open engagement. And the idea is is kind of to use this audio protocol prior to a psychotherapy session so that some that the adult, that the child is coming into the room in an open and engaged state versus defensive. Because you could think of 10,000 different reasons why as an adult or as a kid, you'd be feeling a little bit tense and nervous walking into your therapist's mm-hmm. office. As a kid, it's like, oh, here we go again. I'm going to be in trouble. People are going to be talking about all my problems. And for an adult, it would be like, oh, here we go again. I'm going to walk into a therapist's office. And they're going to talk about my problems. So I think I'm more interested on how, as we're understanding the brain, what are some of the kind of core features to help us get soothing, get calm, um, get in states that are, that prime people towards engagement, meaning that, um, what we know because human beings are social animals that, you know, brains work best together when they feel like the other person Mm -hmm. is a person who is a safe person. Like we're chatting. I don't know you just as an interviewer, but I know you socially as Mm -hmm. well. And so I probably have more safety in the room with you Mm -hmm. to share my life circumstances than I would with a stranger. Right. Of course. It makes sense. And I suppose um, when you talk about uh, adjunctive therapies. Yeah. Yeah. Things like mindfulness yeah, practice as fantastic. well would Ab- also be an important one thousand percent, one thousand percent, and we know that those are things that directly target the brain without words, right? Okay, we like to talk to our guests about creativity and sure. challenging conventions. Psychotherapy as a practice doesn't exactly spring to mind when you talk about <laughs> no, creativity and challenging no, it conventions. 
<laughs> no. So I will ask you the question. I mean, how does creativity and unconventional thinking manifest mm-hmm. itself in your business? Maybe yeah. your method of working that sure. you've just been discussing. I think... Um, or it could even be in terms of managing your sure. team of um, other therapists. Sure. So, you know, I think that probably um, my openness to maybe going a slightly less conventional path. I mean, there's a lot about me that's that's also very conventional, but I think in terms of following maybe along, uh, following these kind of newer treatments and newer approaches, I think probably, you know, starts with a little bit of, um, you know, I think that my dad was someone who kind of liked to buck convention. I think he always kind of felt, felt a little bit like um, an outsider within, you know, kind of like a blue collar guy in the middle of a white collar world. And so I've, you know, had a certain magnet for other mentors in my life. Like my first boss when I was a postdoc um, was also really instrumental in kind of shaking me loose from this idea that, um, you know, a psychotherapy practice had to be such a kind of a slave to academia and also really instilling, speaking of confidence from our prior question, I think instilled some confidence that like, you have this degree, you've done this training, like you can do this and you don't have to do it uh, maybe in the way um, that the the treatment manuals say. You can go out and trust yourself as a clinician to kind of figure things out. So I think that was maybe the, the first part, the, you know, those kind of influential figures yeah. to uh, of how I set up my, my, my business. And I think now, you know, I hope to instill that also in my staff that I think that they're also tend to be coming from graduate programs where, um, you know, for good reason, I think there's a lot of supervision that communicates, you know, that the more experienced licensed people have to help you make decisions when you're first learning. That's to ensure the safety and good treatment for everybody. But I think there's a way that it tends to um, start to get into people's psyche that they don't feel confident that even after people think they see these big degrees and they think, oh, you must feel like you really know something. And usually if you talk to people graduating from a PhD program, at least in clinical psychology, they'd say, no, I don't know anything. I need to check in with this person or this person's the expert or this person's the expert. And I certainly have great reverence for people who have expertise, but I think I like to instill in staff like drop into yourself and have a have a gut sense of what okay. you know how to do yeah so that's interesting it just gets me thinking yeah. um about how you judge success and yeah. failure yeah and how you there's two two elements to it yeah what is success and failure in relation to patients because you're taking them on a journey of transformation mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. but also that uh attitude yep and those characteristics that are displayed by people coming out of that yeah. when you mention someone right. with a PhD you'd expect them to be incredibly yep. confident yep. prepared to take risks that's to right. experiment to right. explore right. new right. avenues right. and that's not something you encounter how right. do you in- foster an environment or a culture right. of I, I accept when I use the word risk taking yeah. there's a limit to how much risk you can take mm-hmm. in treating them sure. and exploring new sure. therapies yeah. or new forms of treatment. Right. But there must be an, an element given your entrepreneurial spirit right. and you're bringing new staff in. Yeah. How do you guide them and coach them? Sure. Well, I think and support, that... And support them in, yeah, in, in, in taking these risks and making tiny failures. Sure. I mean, I think... Um, you know, I know that like safety is a way overused word... But I'll use it, I'll maybe define it really specifically for what is the type of safety. I think um, when I'm, when I was saying before, when I'm trying to work relationally with my staff as well and be transparent and vulnerable with them, I think that um, safety for my staff to take risks comes from the fact that each one of them, um, they could argue, maybe they don't feel this way, but my hope is that they know exactly how I feel about them. They know when I think they're struggling or maybe they need more support and they know when I really think that they're doing a good job and why. And I think a lot of those, um, you know, people call them kind of like candid conversations don't happen. I think people avoid conflict in this culture because we don't have a lot of practice with, you know, rupture and repair. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of kind of direct conversation with my staff that's not it's not about being confrontational but it's it it's it's more in the stance of i care about you and i'm worried about x y and z 
And I know you're going to have feelings about that because you think you, you might think that you're doing X, Y, and Z really, really well, but I'm worried about how it's going. And let's talk about it because what I want for you is to get the support you need to grow. And I think that so often in our professional lives, we're constantly trying to scrape things together to kind of put on our best face and not show any cracks in our armor. And I think that I have to kind of establish that um, very that transparency, that baseline for people to be vulnerable, to admit when things are going um, poorly, for them to actually really get it when they're doing things really, really well. That's an interesting le- leadership technique that's grounded in empathy. Yeah. I was interviewing Michael Ventura from yeah. Sub Rosa. Fantastic. He's written a book uh, called Applied Empathy. And you're, what you're talking about there yeah. embraces a lot of the principles. Absolutely. Um, where did that leadership style come from? It came from my work with DDP. I mean, so it's directly a, related directly to the therapy. Related. So I think it's that. And I think there's another also horribly titled adult it's horribly titled, but incredible therapy that I love called Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. <laughs> try not, repeat, try not, don't ask me to repeat that. Know, but I'm sure your marketing brain is just exploding with that. Um, no, but I think it's, it, it comes from those models and those come from attachment theory, empathy, and really what it is to stand and to be, feel with people is kind of just some of the things that are just very core about us as people. And I think that they those terms get really bastardized and confused, I think, in the culture at large. But I think when you're really in them, it takes two people to be kind of vulnerable where, where things are, are at. Um, the, the You know, to feel with somebody means opening your heart up to whatever they're feeling, which is not something that we do regularly, I think. We can't do it all the time anyway. So are but, you... you know, yeah. Given that you've got this this dualism in terms of the the DDP application of mm-hmm. the the treatment for your patients mm-hmm. and also directing it internally yeah. for your team, yeah, are you doing any work with organisations or businesses yeah. where you can apply that in a way to both train, give leadership training within the businesses, mm-hmm. and also help solve internal conflicts and and management issues? Yeah, I mean that's our hope is that that's the a next place to go. I think that, you know, when um, you were alluding to these trainings that I've done, um, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to travel to Kenya and the UK and the Czech Republic and the Netherlands and New Zealand and Australia. And in many of these trainings, I'm, I'm doing these, I'm training their staff, their clinical staff, their case managers um, to train um, within their agency And whenever we're doing those trainings, we're not just talking about how to do the psychotherapy, but also how to relate to one another. And, you know, it it naturally the conversations from the supervising staff begin to emerge about how to implement this at an organizational level. So it's definitely the next place I want to go because I really feel passionate about how, um, you know, I think you were kind of asking me before kind of what are, you know, how do I see success in my business? And I think one of them is just the felt sense of community that I have with my team. You know, Mm -hmm. being a psychologist is really lonely in some way. It's really rich. And then it's really lonely when you leave your room because there's not the same sense. You can't, you don't walk outside your door. You can't tell anybody about how your day has gone really, you know? So having this team of people and this, this sense of community, I think I feel really good about, and I would love to help other organizations take on what's actually very challenging work, um, to, um, be a bit more bolder and braver and, you know, embrace their vulnerability and, lead from that place um, of strength. So leading, taking the lead from uh, the TV show Billions. Yeah. So you, yeah. a Wendy-esque sort of role but, inside but an organization. But Wendy rarely, you know, Wendy is very direct. But I think that that show, I, you know, I think people have asked me, you know, to kind of, even at one point, someone asked me actually to be, can you be the, can you be Wendy for me? Um, but I think, you know, I love the show. It's super fun to watch, but I think that also so much of what she's doing is about getting people back up and going to perform. Mm-hmm. And that's fantastic when that happens. And I think that that can happen best, but I think often, there's a little bit of there's there's not a good intention for people's best self at best coming out. It's often what's in best service of the bottom of the line. Yeah. yeah, but the individual benefit of having some form of not necessarily using the word therapy. Yeah, but having 
someone within the organization mm-hmm. to discuss their concerns sure to sure have a safe environment totally. to express their fears their anxieties right surely that does then lead to them feeling more satisfied and f- therefore as yeah. themselves the satisfaction and motivation will come will be reflected in better performance whatever mm-hmm. it, whatever the task they're doing that's what i believe too so, and i think like if you know you know you probably know this data better than i do but you know when you look at retention for companies it's not money it's culture Mm-hmm. It's relationships, you know. And feeling that you've got a purpose. And you've got a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that you're recognized. Yep. As well. And listened yeah, to. Absolutely. So. so it would be both I think that the thing that's tricky about being a Wendy is I think there's a role of kind of how to engender that with individual staff. But I think for me, looking at it, an organization, it's really about how do you transform leadership to take this on? How do you train the leaders in the organization to take this approach on? Because I think you can do it one off with people, mm-hmm. but unless the culture supports these kinds of conversations, these kinds of ways of being with each other, I think that um, people can get shut down in this process really quickly. And I think even in people think like, oh, you know, people would work in uh, mental health or in, you know, in a foster care agency or um, an outpatient psychotherapy practice, they must be so psychologically minded with each other. Well, no, we're just human beings. And I think, you know, people's feelings get hurt or pride gets stepped on or um, don't feel like that they have purpose or meaning in the group. And I think it gets missed unless you're really thinking relationally about the people that you're working with. I used to do some work at a, when I was working at a big agency, McCann, with a great client, Ikea. Okay. And Ikea, we had a lot of time yeah. spent using a, um, in reflection. And often reflection happened after projects or during projects mm-hmm. to discuss, you know, what was working to have a, essentially round tables where yeah. people would get out their, their thoughts, totally. uh, their concerns, their frustrations. And I found it a very productive and constructive um, way of working. Absolutely. And it, I think it is very much a Swedish way. And it feels that there's a strong crossover and elements of of DDP. And one sort of oh, uh, just a little bit of observation yeah. and maybe feedback yeah. for people in the psychological circles. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's a branding problem with DDP. Oh, it yeah, doesn't exactly yeah, roll yeah, off yeah. the tongue. No. And maybe there's, if there, you are yeah. taking this into the corporate world, yeah. maybe you just have to come up with a different terminology. Yeah, I, I for believe it. so. I we'll, we'll be, we'll be, we might be in discussion on, on that later, Mark. After, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. But it, it does feel like there's a real opportunity there, um, particularly in the, sort of the, uh, the, the need for companies to sort of transform and create yeah. As you say, it's a probably an overused word, these yeah. safe environments, and it's misinterpreted a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Because but I think when it's when you're, especially when you're dealing within an attachment context, and I think that attachment now is becoming a little bit more mainstream in that I think that there's now like some dating sites that are using it and people are getting some sense that like, oh, every human being on the planet has an attachment style. We have a way we feel and deal with things and internal stresses, external stresses in the world that comes from just our experiences when we were younger. So given that we're living in this yeah. hyper-connected, technologically, socially connected world where yeah. we're feeling as a society, and certainly all the evidence is there of people feel, sensing depression, yep. disconnection, isolation, yep. even in the workplace, yep. there has to be some intervention, surely, yes. than this, that this type of treatment or leadership or management right. style could right. be the answer to that. I, I, I really agree. And I think we look at things like the Minister of Loneliness for the UK, we look at the skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression in teenagers, the, you know, extremely troubling um, increased rates of suicide completion that are happening now that appear not to be statistical artifacts, but appear to be kind of part and parcel of the world that we're living in right now. Um, I absolutely think that interventions around really understanding even how does technology fit into relationships? I was just listening to um, Ezra Klein's podcast. He was talking about the, the the digital divide and that really the difference is based on wealth, but it's not what we thought. 
everybody seems to have screens, but it's wealthier folks who have extra support to help their kids get off of screens and mm. into relationship and back to kind of more anachronistic, you know, particularly, activities. Particularly sort of uh, founders of very successful Silicon Valley tech companies. Yes, absolutely. Probably who the best do, example. Who absolutely. Do who tech, are tech very, norms. very vocal about it, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that, again, it's, you know, it, it's not just being off a screen doesn't necessarily lead to good connection, but it's the start. And I think thinking about, you know, we just derive so much meaning from our relationships, you know, I'm, I'm preparing for an interview with a ADD sufferer mm-hmm. and I'm reading his book at the moment and I'm due for an interview with him called yeah. Ryder Carroll, uh, creator of the bullet journal and Ryder created the bullet journal as an antidote Mm-hmm. Or sort of journaling as yeah. an antidote to his suffering yeah. uh, he took upon himself yeah. and to turn to pen and paper. Right. And as a, uh, funnily enough, as a digital product designer, was turning away from technology, but going right. back to old school, right. analog sort of, let's say, technology, yeah. pen and paper to journal yeah. as a way to, I think the way he describes it, declutter his mind. Mm-hmm. And to um, to cultivate his curiosity and remain more focused, mm-hmm. which obviously as an AD, ADD sufferer yeah, is, is a primary yeah, reason. But yeah. what he talks about is it, it's really led him to this conclusion that it allows you to create uh, or allows you to live a more intentional life. And he yeah. calls it intentionality. Right. So rather than living or just enduring life right. and just drifting along. Um, reacting mm-hmm. it allows you to be more proactive I suppose yes. and the way I think he terms it is tracking your past ordering your present and designing designing your future so is just to go on a slight tangent yeah. that idea you're talking about of getting away from technology and getting right. away from screens that Ezra Klein was yeah. talking about presumably journaling is a good good sure. good example of that sure yeah I mean I think journaling is a good example of that and you know even um, you know, I can remember that there, there's maybe even a little bit of kind of a um, subtle kind of relational piece to journaling, or there can be in the sense of, you know, even when you are organizing something for yourself, you know, there's been studies that just writing things down, getting your story out, um, you know, in certain kind of maybe specific research paradigms, even when you're turning something in, even though there's no guarantee that anyone's going to read it, that there's some imagined audience, Mm -hmm. that there's some dialogue with kind of an, an internal other, um, that there, that, I don't know, I I would just say that, that there's, it's, it's about making meaning and it's about turning away from technology, but I would just say that there's also maybe just some subtle implied kind of relational activity in journaling. It's very solitary, but there's your, who are you writing to? yourself, your best self, your hopeful self? Is it, you know, I think getting things out that can't be um, said to certain people. I mean, I think that there really is a kind of, um, it's a really powerful, it can be very powerful communication to say the things you can't say to people. So Corinne, you described on your site, um, as part of your treatment is helping adults, children and families understand their stories to help form stronger connections. Can you just expand a bit more on what you mean by um, understanding their stories? So, um, yeah, I think stories and having a story is really important on two levels with the families that I work with very often because these kids who are coming out of uh, foster care or are... um, international adoption um, where they might have been an institution or an orphanage. Um, There are huge pieces of their life that we just take for granted that are not there. When was my birth date? When was I actually, where was I actually born? What were the circumstances of it? Who is my birth mother, my birth father? There's huge, huge, huge gaps in actual information. So it's really important to start to weave together. We do things called timelines with them or life books with them, which, you know, are very often done uh, working with this population. However, I think the thing that's different about the way that we approach it is that we understand it's not just knowing the facts of your story. It's processing the loss and it's alleviating the shame that's related to it. So that our ultimate goal for these kids and for these families is to be able to hold their head up high and claim their entire story. Because for so many of them, just by the fact that their birth parents did not decide to raise them, injects them maybe with I, I thinking back to earlier in this conversation where I was talking about how lucky I was to have parents who 
believed in me. Hmm. And I'm so lucky that I had that. And I think this is the opposite sensation, which really is a felt experience. It's not logical, which is someone did not want me. And the does, this apply, that, not, does yeah. this apply to um, single parent families as well as adoptive children? Sure, because there's always, we are as human beings always monitoring loss and it could be single parent family. It could be a family where there's both parents present, but one is emotionally um, unavailable or is struggling with addiction, is not is not emotionally present. You know, that it can be, um, it's not just for adoptive families. This is a model that also works with biological families where, you know, we just as human beings, we monitor all the time. Are you there? Are you interested in me? And when you're not, Usually the kind of automatic assumption that you jump to as a child is there is something wrong with me because it's far scarier to assume there's something wrong with the adults that are caring for me. I was in Philly, mm-hmm. South Philly, mm-hmm. uh, Philadelphia, mm. uh, two weeks ago interviewing Tyreek Glasgow, yeah. who is a reformed uh, drug dealer um, and imprisoned and now back on in the streets of South Philly mm-hmm. helping disadvantaged youth really transform their life through sport and art and it's an incredible sort of story what he's doing with the support of the local um, mayor's office and DA's office it's really impressive but he talked about his youth and his pain and his suffering and that he went through um, from a a broken home and living with his grandmother didn't really talk too much about his mother or father but also just the pain and the suffering that a lot of these kids are dealing with on the streets absolutely and that's obviously what you're dealing with and what you're seeing. And there's a thing, you know, I think that people, when they hear that, there's still maybe some people kind of give a little eye roll to that. But Mm. when we are neglected, when, you know, in terms of what we now understand, what our brain does with that is that that is a social, our, our brain registers that as social rejection. If you're a kid and you're trying to reach out to people for support and you're getting either nothing or you're getting abuse, it's registered as social pain. What our brain does with that is numb it out. Mm-hmm. And it can be on the parenting end of things too. So it's like this pain often gets kind of buffered by drugs, violence, noise, chaos, because it is um, our, our, our bodies and our nervous system get wired not to feel those things because they're just, they're so central to, um, it's it's kind of like life or death to feel like you are connected and that there are that there are adults in your life that are that think that you're important and want to take care of you. Uh, and I suppose the um, yeah the antidote to or or the reaction to that sort of that lack that pain that suffering mm-hmm. that lack of connection is obviously as you say yeah. you're drawn into sort of drugs and addiction. Yeah. But equally, as Tariq said, I'm there's going to be a guy in the street corner going, "Hey, what do you need?" Yeah, and suddenly. You're in that gang yeah. and you're part of that crew. And you and have meaning and you have yeah. connection and you have people looking out for you. And if you haven't had that, there's the idea of it and the and the feeling of it. It's just like our, our brains just seek support. We'll get it any way we can. We'll get it from people who actually are hurting us. It doesn't matter. We'll get it any way we can. Yeah. Okay, Courtney, I want to come to um, another question, but we might just have to pause for a break. Sure. I'll like run down and, uh, to get a little glass of wine. It's Friday afternoon. Let, let's, let's please let's do pause that. For a minute. Okay. <laughs> Good so, that you caught so, it then, though, Mark. I know. Yeah. Right, so Courtney, I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a timely question. Uh, okay. It's a nice segue. Um, clearly, we're living through very challenging times. Yeah, um, to say the both least. Culturally, politically, economically, and, and obviously climate change aside. You, but you must be dealing with and feeling and seeing the pain that people are experiencing at the harder end mm-hmm. of society mm-hmm. firsthand. So let's just say a big what if. What if you were yeah. given the keys to the mayor's office? Even better, we give you the keys to the White House. Twenty twenty is coming around. Yeah. What would you start with changing? Um, before I maybe go to the what if, I mm-hmm. do maybe want to kind of just state um, because I feel like it's hard just to jump to that without uh, naming some part of. Uh, m- my lens, my group practices lens of what's been happening over the past couple of years of the administration, but particularly what's been going on since the Kavanaugh hearings um, back this fall, which is that we've been inundated with mostly women, um, but there's it's, it's new stories or new admissions of um, times of being hurt, assaulted, sexually assaulted and raped um, and harassed since the... Since 
Yeah, sorry. Since, sorry. No, I just want to say, is this also uh, aligned with the Me Too movement as well? Aligned with Me Too. And I think what the... I think that since the since the election, we've had more discussions about, I think, immigration issues, about certainly assault issues that are related to Me Too, and also that more men coming forward as well, trying to work through their own histories and trying to figure out and make sense of maybe murky or ambiguous encounters that they've had in their life too. And so I don't want to discount, you know, the the men that are in our practice and who are trying to work that through. Mm -hmm. And we're always kind of talking about how do we leave um, the door open and stay engaged with men and partner with men and ally with men who are trying to work this out and figure this out too. But I guess I'll just say since the Kavanaugh hearings, it's not been just me too. There was something about those hearings that really just set off a whole other cascade of admissions of things that had happened many years or more recently, but things that, that I mean, there was a point at which my staff was just saying, I've just gone back to back to back with three with three clients that have been working with me for quite some time, all three with with new memories of things, not not found memories, but just things they'd never reported, never said that there's just been something that I I guess it just feels like it why, bears why mentioning. You, I mean, I'm intrigued. I mean, why yeah. do you think it triggered such a visceral reaction? I mean, I don't have a scientific reason for it. I can only speak for myself because I think that it also made me reflect on my own history and my own experiences. And I think it certainly made me, it kind of opened up a whole well of emotion that I think I'd kind of put to the side about some of my own experiences in my life. Um, I just think there was something so incredibly powerful about Christine and Blasey Ford Ford and her testimony and... I think just so many women and men too, um, I'm speaking primarily of women here, but I don't want to leave them out as well, could just relate to, there was something that happened to me that was that was really scary and really troubling. And I had to put it, I had to move it aside and move on with my life. And I did, but I had to kind of block out some of the pain about that situation. Not every instance of sexual assault, sexual harassment, or rape results in PTSD or brings people into mental health services. People were built to get on with their lives. However, the experiential quality of that, I think, is another matter. And I think people are just came back into contact with rage, with fear, with just unresolved issues that they wanted to work through. So I just feel like I wanted to maybe add some important, maybe uh, a context to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just, I've, it's almost like I have so many thoughts about what's going on in our country right now. I, it's really hard to organize them. The thing that comes to mind is maybe feels uh, jumping from that kind of more painful contextual issue to the politics might just feel a little bit superficial, but it mm-hmm. makes me think of places like Iceland and even in Kenya where they've legislated things like, half of the legislature has to be women. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that women are the only solution, but I do think um, that, and, you know, and, and we can have a, maybe open the conversation to about some affirmative action generally around gender and around race and our representation. Our legislatures do not reflect the gender makeup and racial makeup of our country. And I think when it's so discrepant, um, I just think it leads to you know, there's going to be, when there's power, there's corruption. There'll be, you know, I'm not saying that women are perfect or that if we're, if we're thinking about this even more in terms of other lines of identity, it's not always a perfect solve, but I think it, 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 if I could flip a switch, when you look at what happened in Iceland, for example, mm-hmm. um, they made a decision after kind of, I, I believe it was in the seventies where they started to kind of put ratios. Yeah. I don't, do you know, are you familiar yeah, yeah. with this? I yeah. Story, yeah. Yeah. So obviously we're, we're a far more heterogeneous, heterogeneous, um, population than Iceland is, but it just makes me think like there's so many things we're going to have to work through to heal to try to heal. I don't know if it's going to be possible to heal. I don't want to be Pollyannish about just the damage that is being done and is currently occurring in the country. Um, but you must but, also feel optimistic given the midterms and the amount of women that, that actually have yeah, been and elected and the, know, and, the, and the age of some of these people as well and the, a new generation totally. coming. So change But will you know be- when you say that, 
it makes me feel like this, if I'm being honest, I also feel this burst of like, like, dude, it was like, we have to like jump up and down for 24%. You know, we, we yeah. didn't even get a full quarter and we're, and yeah, it's historic and yes, change is slow, but I guess I just feel like, you know, after the lecture, after the midterms, I was really excited about, and also just also that it's not just gender wise, but also the diversity in terms of, of um, women of different religious backgrounds, sexual orientation, you know, that, that uh, ethnic backgrounds that made it made first. I think all those things are exciting. I just think it's so um, we're so it, it's just crazy to me that's 2018 and we're um, we're so far off the ball game in terms of uh representation that's proportional to the population of this country. It's bonkers. Yeah. No, it's true in politics. It's true in business. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Well, now I, now I, I feel like we've repaired. Because I, 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 I mentioned a, there was an event here at Neuhaus um, about a month ago where Seth Godin stood up and talked and spoke to the, and he yeah. said, made this comment about, um, I wish, please stop talking about the resistance. You're not the resistance. You're the yeah. trend. Yeah, the the resistance is the is the government. That's right. It's not just government. It's the anyone holding the reins of power, whether yeah. it be in big business or whether yeah. it be in politics or it be in religion. It's uh, people trying to resist change. And let's face uh, yeah. it, we know We're that really most terrified people of it. fear change, yes, but change is do. coming. So it's optimistic. Now we've really repaired, Mark. Now I feel much well, better about good. the whole thing. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> well, maybe we just need to get you thinking about 2020. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to get into some quick fire questions. Sure. What principles do you stand by? Um, I guess integrity around... Um, trying to stand in integrity about acting in the world in a way that's consistent with my emotional truth. So that's, that's maybe, I mean, it's maybe one for a lot of people, but having my insights, having my insights match my outsides and, um, taking the risks, um, that need to happen in order for that to occur. Okay. What hard choices have you had to make? that might have been tough at the time, but it actually turned out to be the right decision in the end. I guess, you know, it's funny. Something just jumped over. I don't have one in particular. I guess I just feel like that there's probably a million hard choices in relationships. Mm -hmm. If I was going to be really honest, I think that um, I've been thinking lately about kind of the course of my life or even just in this trajectory of kind of business and entrepreneurship. And I think you know, there was probably a point at which with a very old boyfriend that I probably probably would have gone the course of, of, of marriage, but none of this would have, ha- like none of my life would have happened. And I often think about it because he's a really wonderful person. And I don't know that, that he ever thought that, but I kind of think that we, we were with each other for very long, knew each other for a very long time. It likely would have gone in that direction. My life would have been really different. And um, I think ending that relationship in totality was probably a really hard decision and oddly set up everything else in my life. Feels like you've come full circle to the serendipity question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm glad. Uh, I think I probably still don't fully understand the serendipity question, but I'm glad that I'm coming full circle okay, to something. Well, yeah. Maybe that's all part of serendipity. Yeah. We maybe not so. meant to understand it. Okay. Uh, where do you go to discover new ideas? Um, I think um, that, that that can be physical. It yeah. can be um, spiritual. Yeah. It can be... I think it's like it's probably the hit list is like there's something that happens. Um, you know, I think it's probably I'm not alone that when I'm traveling and particularly when I'm traveling outside of the country that I'm so out of my day to day context that there's just a lot I can kind of whether I'm directly questioning it, it's I'm implicitly kind of questioning it and kind of feel generally more open to thinking about looking at my life kind of literally from the outside, thinking about traveling back and thinking about kind of what I want. Um, But I think that those trips are often done with very good friends. And so I think that whether I'm away or whether I'm home, really good friends that kind of are, um, are also really curious and journeying and thinking about their lives um, and are, and I feel safe enough emotionally to kind of be, candid and honest with I think that those discussions are also fantastic um 
And I think sometimes it's like, you know, like the, for me, there's like kind of this point in time on Sundays, sometimes when things haven't been so crazy in the week that Sundays, that kind of that time where either you can kind of get a little bit, have the Sunday blues, or mm-hmm. you can be kind of like reflective. I feel like those are also maybe times when new ideas and reflection come into the mix in a good way. Okay. Um, the final question, Courtney, is what we call the impossible question. Sure. From what you've told me, you there's a duality. There's one side of your family that was about, um, there was a, a history of uh, medics, doctors, mm-hmm. Nursing. Yeah, that's the namesake of my group practice in a way. Yeah, my grandfather, Ralph Andreas, yeah, oh, who was a doctor. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. it's good. Maintaining the family legacy. That's it's right. great. On the other side of your family, mm-hmm. father's side, the Norwegian, German, Russian, Irish connection, there was a history of addiction and, mm-hmm. and alcoholism. And as families play out, you sure. could have gone down neither route, but you have gone down the positive route. Yeah. The journey of possibility to achieve what many people would deem to be um, um, impossibility for mm-hmm. someone of your background, which mm-hmm. is having your own practice, your own business, mm-hmm. successful international speaking career mm-hmm. and teaching. I'd, li- I'd like your perspective on it because I know that, you know, not, you know, there's different journeys and people we've interviewed that have definitely have got an impossible journey, but yeah. I'd like your perspective on, yeah. on your own particular set struggles and also any advice you could pass on to anyone else that might be in a similar position to you that you were maybe 20 20 years ago sure i mean i think um i mean while you were giving me that really nice setup mark about my um my successes it's still kind of uh i'm bristling a bit but i'm i'm just letting it sit as you said it um i think that there are ways in which i am successful i think that my journey you know, um, doesn't feel so impossible in the sense of I had so many advantages. I really did in, in, I think the ways that are most important in terms of love and support. Um, and I think in terms of, um, you know, I had two parents who broke their own cycles in different ways. My dad being the first in his family to go to of his immediate family to go to college. And my mom, I think breaking out of her, busting out of her kind of, um, the expectations of, of being a good Irish Catholic girl. Uh, so I think it's not so impossible in the sense of, I have a lot of privilege. And I would say within that, um, I, when you look at, even if we're just going back to, if I could be a little bit political about this, mm-hmm. I think, of course. um, if you look at the number of white women that voted that voted against their interests or continue to vote against their interests, I still think there is, you know, that there's patriarchy. I still think that there's something about um, women taking a step forward and taking risks to speak out against potentially and men in their life. And that um, that men having the last say about uh, who you choose in the election booth um, and also maybe about different choices that you might make with career, with money, et cetera. So I think I'm not I'm not building myself up to all of that, but I just think I want to acknowledge the amazing privileges I've had. But I still think there are maybe the, the things that are difficult are about um, still trying to do that on a day to day basis in my own life of. Um, when I was saying earlier of having my outsides match my insides, you know, to try to um, speak truth to power when I need to, which is still not easy to do. It's just not even even as many privileges as I've had. You know, I can think of a very recent situation um, where it was still really difficult to speak up to, um, you know, somebody who is in power, who is male, who... Um, I didn't agree with something that this person did. So I, I think, um, I don't think that's necessarily, I don't know how successful I feel at doing those things, but it's certainly something I aspire to and is maybe the only context I would, I would say that it's, I think like there were many people along the way who I think kind of helped me shake loose of being kind of a quote unquote, nice white girl. And I think the world needs maybe, um, more like, you know, white girls who are ready to get messy. Okay. That's and my, that's what, my, what would your advice be to someone 20 <laughs> years to get messy? And I, I think it is about, you know, it goes back to, I think maybe watching some of my staff and their development too. I think of, um, 
part of, I think, in a very kind of political, kind of cultural sense about being, again, people can really disagree with this, but I, I think about being a white woman is a lot of the privilege is derived from pleasing people and not shaking the boat. And I think that there, that it's okay to shake the boat, that there is, um, I think, to live in a kind of integrity where you're trying to kind of speak up for yourself and speak your own truth and not necessarily please everybody in the room. I think, you know, regardless of gender and regardless of race or background, it's still something I think we're all trying to do is just kind of to live your own life. But I think I can only speak for my own experience. And I think there's something about with white girls and being too people pleasing. And I think, um, I will think Haya Mermerstein from my family therapy externship back in Beth Israel, who was basically like, you know, stop being so nice to all of us. Let's get going. Mm -hmm. Speak the truth. It's okay. You know, and I think there's something still about that, that I'm still trying to work on. And I think if we all did collectively, who knows what could, what kind of earthquake could could, uh, transpire. Thank you for your honesty, being so candid with your thoughts. A lot of people when we come to interviews will be slightly guarded. And although we do have a social connection, I still uh, recognize and and appreciate your being candid and honest. Also, I recognize your uh, integrity that comes through in what you say and, and also applaud your vulnerability in terms of talking about your own sort of vulnerabilities in, in your journey and uh, and your passion for what you do yeah. um, really sort of comes through, which is amazing. So I wish you all the best in the future of Renegade Associates. <laughs> I look forward to maybe in uh, future episodes catching up well, thank about, you very much about where you end up and uh, a nudge. Uh, yeah. 2020. Yeah. Let's Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. As a, yeah, sure. Renicky 2020. Exactly. It's got, <laughs> certain, it's got a certain ring to it. Yeah. Kind of, kind of. Thanks Mark. very much. Thank you. Bye. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now... Stay curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.